Section 12 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. The years 1836 and 1837 were remarkable for the great abundance of money and the reckless speculations in trade and preposterous prices of everything bought or sold. I said the abundance of money, but unfortunately it was unsound money. Banks had been established in utter recklessness and disregard of the basis of the notes they issued. Loans were easily obtained, and every man of enterprise borrowed money to speculate in real estate or invest in stocks or merchandise or manufactures. Towns were laid out and great cities founded, on paper, in every conceivable locality, till the markets were filled with all kinds of fictitious values. The consequence was that the banks soon lent more currency than they could keep afloat, and in due time had to suspend specie payments. All varieties of failure naturally followed, and in less than one month, specie as currency disappeared. The banks refused accommodations, and not even their poor paper money could be had. Such as did circulate was of the worst quality, and all change was made with due bills for goods or orders of individuals to pay a note for a few cents when the amount of five dollars was presented in current banknotes, which were only good as against the party that issued them. In this condition of things, there was no more to be done than make a living, and even that was hard. I had incurred debts in building our house and paying for the lot. So, when building came to a standstill, I had next to nothing to do. In the fall of 1839, a younger brother, who had worked with me at painting in Martinville, went to join my father's family in Hamilton, where there was more prosperity in trade. There he got a good many jobs in painting, in which he was doing well till overtaken by the ague. He then wrote to me to join him and at least help him through with what he had agreed to do. Just then, a brother of my mother-in-law and one of his neighbor farmers of Pennsylvania came along on their way westward to see the state of Ohio, of which they had heard much, and to explore the wilds of the Miami Valley, their objective point being Dayton. They had traveled from Carlisle in Pennsylvania and were going on in a two-horse carriage. This was an opportunity for me to go to Hamilton as they offered me a seat with them, and I accepted. We started on a beautiful October morning and drove through the state, occupying nearly five days in the trip. We went directly to Zanesville, then to Lancaster, to Washington Courthouse in Fayette County, and to Xenia and Dayton. At that season the roads were as good as they could be, and the weather fine. The journey was altogether one of the most delightful I ever made. Much of the country was new to me, and to them it was altogether new, and in such strong contrast with their own state that it was like a voyage of discovery. We reached Dayton about noon, which gave us time to look around at the place, then an important town, before I left by canal boat for Hamilton, and they started on their return. 
That night took me through to Hamilton, the boat landing there at daylight. I stayed there some seven or eight weeks, and was offered the Intelligencer newspaper establishment on easy terms. It was on the eve of the great presidential election of 1840. I was urged to take hold of the paper in view of Harrison's becoming the candidate of the Whigs, and I made a conditional bargain to be closed when I should get home. I finally bought the office on credit, but was a long time in paying for it. One mistake was in not selling our house in Martinville and using the proceeds in payment on the office, instead of holding on to it till it ran down in value and we were finally glad to let it go for a song. Had I sold that house and lot, I could have got along easier in Hamilton, but that is far past. In less than a week after our arrival, we had got into shape in Hamilton, and I soon after issued my first copy of The Intelligencer. The campaign opened very early that year, and the excitement ran extremely high. I launched into the middle of it and entered into the contest sincerely and enthusiastically, and I think I made the paper more efficient than it had been before. Politically, this contest was not on very high moral grounds. The dollar had more to do with it than humanity. Still, there was underlying the structure of the Whig organization a principle that regarded man and his rights. The slavery question was then just coming up. When that question did crop out, the right side was better supported by the Whigs than the Democrats, though both parties affected not to care about it, and each made it a point to deny all anti-slavery sympathy. Still, the men who were strong Whigs in that day were among the most enthusiastic Republicans in a later day. Such was the power of the slave system then, and long after, that nothing was to be accomplished politically by direct war upon it. The good men whose hearts were arrayed against it had to wait till an army of sufficient strength to fight it safely was educated for the battle. Therefore the contest in 1840 was about something else than slavery, except as the issues then made affected the rights of labor and the progress of humanity. We have lived to see this battle fought, and we have seen how hard it was for a large portion of the very Republicans who had arrayed themselves ostensibly on the side of freedom to accept the conditions upon which Providence plainly placed the success of the North and the nation. We have seen how long it was before slavery was acknowledged to be the issue of the war in which everything else was subordinate, before the blacks were rationally called to their place in the ranks and their rights recognized in their emancipation. It was indeed marvelous to realize the depths to which that evil had eaten its way into the national heart when a soldier would lay down his life in such a fearful contest for national existence, rather than accept the help of the enslaved race. The management of American politics during the twelve years after General Jackson's election had been in the hands of the so-called Democratic Party, and the government was conducted according to the most liberal construction of the idea of that school, which was that the people, or those whom they put into power, 
had an indisputable right to do as they pleased, or that, by the virtue of their natural sovereignty, the people could do no wrong. The consequence of this was that the administrations of General Jackson and of Van Buren, his successor, were arbitrary and oppressive, as well as in a great degree corrupt. Chapter 28 Conclusion by W. D. Howells Support of Harrison in 1840 and Clay in 1844 Opposition to the Mexican War Refusal to support Taylor and removal to Dayton Business failure A year in the country A winter in Columbus Removal to Ashtabula County Congenial political surroundings Election to the State Senate Appointment to Consulate at Quebec, Promotion to Toronto, Resignation, Farming in Virginia, Return to Jefferson, Declining Years, Death. My father had meant to bring the foregoing sketch of his life down to the present date, but various events occurred to prevent the fulfillment of his purpose, and it remains for me to finish the record as I can from my personal knowledge of the facts, and from what I have heard him say of them. He took an active and enthusiastic part in the great Harrison campaign of 1840, and made his influence felt as strongly as he could on what he believed the right side in national politics. Of course, his sphere as the editor of a country newspaper was very restricted, but the country press counted for more in that day than it does in this, and he always thought that it could be a greater power if it dealt more with affairs of general concern and confined itself less to neighborhood gossip and the chronicles of small beer. He did not neglect the local interests, but he believed there were others, and he preferred these moral, religious, political interests. I suppose that he felt the humorous character of human affairs too strongly ever to be a fanatical devotee of any cause, but he was a very earnest man, and he was at no time afraid to do what he held right. He was opposed to slavery and to drunkenness, but he was neither an abolitionist nor a teetotaler, for he did not think those evils could be immediately dealt with, but hoped for their gradual control and extinction. He remained a Whig, and in 1844 he gave Henry Clay as cordial support as he had given Harrison in 1840. No doubt he felt that even greater principles were at stake, and under the Whig banner he fought against the annexation of Texas, because he knew that it implied the extension of slavery. When this took place, and war was declared against Mexico, he did his best to make his readers feel the wicked injustice of that war and the atrocity of the popular sentiment, our country right or wrong, in which so many good people reconciled themselves to the invasion and dismemberment of a sister republic. His course brought him in conflict not merely with theories and principles, but with the men who embodied them in the little town which was overwhelmingly democratic and pro-slavery in feeling. 
and was the scene of great martial activity. In those days, a journalist was more apt to pay with his person for unpopular opinions than he is now, and the editor of the Intelligencer was not always safe at Hamilton from the hostilities so rife at Monterey and Veracruz. He was never anxious for himself, being a man so incredulous of danger that he was essentially without fear, but I can remember the anxieties for him at home under the standing threats of belligerent captains and majors not yet at the front. About the time that he was defying popular feeling in this direction, he was attacking, in his paper, the gambling dens of the place, and at this distance I cannot be sure of given anxieties whether they more concerned the leaders of our volunteer forces or the keepers of these resorts. There was always more or less going on in the way of the temperance movement, which he strongly favored on its possible side. As a good Whig, he hoped something from its success for the Whig cause, and did what he could to render the solid German democracy, which began to be divided into the Brauhaus Gemeinde and the Temperance Gemeinde, with the possibility that the Temperance Gemeinde would end politically in the embrace of the Whig party. I do not know whether it did so, probably not, but I recollect the amusement their dissensions and discussions gave him, even when they were carried into the bosom of the Lutheran Church. He was himself a thorough Swedenborgian at this period, and his intellectual experience was about equally divided between politics and religion. If he had continued his memoir, he would doubtless have given a more adequate impression of his devotion to the philosophy of Swedenborg than the reader will have received from what he has written. It became more and more largely his life, and he joined to his activities in behalf of the Whig party a no less eager devotion to the interests of the new church. He edited and published a Swedenborgian periodical called the Retina, which he carried on for a year at the usual loss, I suppose, for he had then to give it up. But he continued always a reader of the doctrines, and he wrote more or less concerning them. Toward the end of his life, his interest in them became less constant, but I think not so much from failing conviction as from the fact that he had so entirely absorbed them. He no longer felt the need of strenuous conclusions as to matters which are really beyond our forces. Or, as he once wrote me, youth is the time to believe, age is the time to trust. When the great Ohio Whig, Tom Corwin, lifted his voice against the Mexican War in Congress, my father was among the very first to name him for the party candidacy in 1848, and when the Whigs in that year nominated a successful general of the war, he would not support him, but gave his whole heart and soul to the hopeless cause of the Free Soil Party. This course of his led to the sale of his paper, for without the favor of the Whigs he could not hope to continue it. He seems not to have thought of compromising between his convictions and his interests, and his conduct in the matter was from that unconscious courage 
that his life was full of. I simply know the fact as it occurred, for I do not remember ever to have heard him speak of it, and I doubt if he valued himself upon it. Yet he had a large family, and he had no immediate prospect before him, and I fancy that after a balance had been struck between his debts and credits, very little ready money, if any, remained to him for a new enterprise. He once said that his livelihood from the newspaper never passed $1,200 a year. He cast about in various ways for some months, and at one time it seemed as if the family fortunes were made in the discovery that a certain weed could be successfully cultivated for its fiber in paper-making. I am not sure, but it was the common milkweed whose bowl is full of a silky cotton. But at any rate, it came to nothing, and my father bought an interest in the Dayton transcript, and we went to live in Dayton. By this time, President Taylor had shown himself adverse to the pro-slavery tendencies in his party, and my father again called himself a Whig, but it was for a little while only. The Whigs under Fillmore and Webster enacted the fugitive slave law, and that made it impossible for him to continue with them. The community in which our lot was cast was scarcely more friendly than that we had left to the political principles he advocated and he had further imperiled his chances of success by starting a daily edition of the newspaper he had bought and was trying to pay for. We fought a losing battle, and we lost it. In two years he failed, and we left Dayton for the country, which was always tempting and betraying us from generation to generation. This time, however, it was not exactly farming that called to the latent agriculture in our blood, though there was a farm connected with the milling property which my uncles bought and sent my father to take charge of until they could wind up their affairs and settle their families on it. They were druggists and doctors, and they had bought a grist mill and a sawmill, which they were going to turn into paper mills and conduct on a sort of cooperative principle at last, if not at first. The enterprise never got beyond the earliest stage. The grist mill and the sawmill remained, and after a year one of my uncles came to replace my father in his charge, and we were again seeking our fortunes. My father could turn hopefully to the newspaper life alone, and after much seeking, he found employment as legislative reporter for the Ohio State Journal at Columbus. This function has long been disused, I believe, but then it afforded us a livelihood, and we remained in Columbus until the adjournment of the legislature. By that time, my father had made acquaintance with some of the Free Soil representatives from the Western Reserve, and had learned of an opening at Ashtabula, where a share of the Sentinel newspaper could be had on the only terms he was able to offer, work and hope. We removed to that village in the early summer of 1852, and in the following January we removed with the paper to the county seat at Jefferson. There my father was connected with the Sentinel for twenty years, and there his eldest son, still publishes that paper. 
he had always a great affection for the eastern and southern part of the state where his early life was passed and as he grew older his mind reverted with increasing fondness to the familiar scenes and types of those regions but now for the first time he found himself in a community full of sympathy with his political opinions and so liberal in all religious opinions that he could not feel himself alien in the great interests of his life the little village of jefferson which then counted hardly more than seven hundred inhabitants was the home of giddings and of wade and was the center of a most extraordinary amount of reading and thinking outside of massachusetts i do not believe that an equal average of intelligence could have been found among all sorts and conditions of men who were there of an almost perfect social equality my father heartily enjoyed all this which was in keeping with his quaker origin and tradition he gave his energies to his paper and his party with a reasoned hopefulness such as he could never have felt before and he prospered with them he escaped from the narrowness of village life now and then by means of a legislative clerkship and passed two or three winters in columbus and in eighteen sixty four he was elected to the state senate from his district by a larger majority than it ever gave before or since thanks to the solidification of the vote by the facts and feelings of the closing war as the reader of the foregoing memoir knows he was always fond of the simpler and kinder things of life he was devotedly attached to his home and he loved the woods and fields about it but after the death of a son who was taken from him in the flower of his most promising youth he withdrew more and more from the world and lived in his affections in a measure which was pathetic to me returning to him after a separation of years he seemed quite to have lost the ambitions of his former days and to have no interests but such as centered about his own hearthstone when our home was irreparably shattered by the death of my mother he could no longer find refuge there and he was willing to quit for a while the scenes that death had saddened to him except for the wishes of his family however i do not suppose he would have sought the place which he was given by president grant who appointed him consul at quebec in eighteen seventy four he spent four or five years in that ancient capital which were among the happiest of his whole life brightened by agreeable associations and the friendly acquaintance of a wide circle of people strange to him in everything but their gentleness and culture he was afterward promoted to the consulate at toronto where again he found himself in congenial surroundings and in the enjoyment of duties which he felt that he usefully discharged he resigned his post in eighteen eighty three and bought a farm near richmond virginia where he removed at once he had always fondly remembered the virginia country and he gladly returned to the region and the occupation of his early years it was a great mistake however at seventy-five he was too old to manage the farm he had bought and it was no more to him than a charming home for three years at the end of this time he exchanged it for a property in jefferson 
and returned to that village, where he ended his long life at the age of 87, on the 28th of August, 1894. His last years were full of peace, and I think were not the least happy of his many years. His six acres formed for him the image of a farm which was not beyond his failing energies, and kept him in the work that meant health rather than profit to him. A horse and a cow represented the farm stock to him, and troops of chickens, turkeys, ducks, and most discordant guinea fowls, he had brought the last from Virginia and witnessed their steady decrease with some criticism of the lakeshore climate, perhaps superabundantly supplied the place of the poultry of other days. He fed them himself, and so had a personal acquaintance with each of them, which had its sentimental disadvantages when it came to a question of their transfer to the table. He was very fond of his garden, and quite successful with it, planting it and tending it himself, and accepting with serene satisfaction whatever the superior energies of the weeds left him. His orchard mostly got the better of him in an apple year, when he found himself quite unequal to its magnificent yield. But he could cope with his grapes, and he made from them every autumn a wine that he never cared for himself, but was glad to have approved by the more educated palate of others. Melons were an ambition with him, which he latterly realized by having the seeds started in pots and then set out in the bed he had prepared. But I think he secretly preferred the culture of pumpkins, which he admired for their lusty profusion and vigor. He never could eat them, of course, and he meekly accepted my censure of him for giving so much time and space to these purely decorative vegetables when he could just as well have raised Hubbard squashes in their stead. He would promise that the next year he would plant no pumpkins, and I believe he made some vows to this effect last spring when we were planting a melon bed together. It was a rather hot day, and I suffered from the sun as I set out the plants, but he followed actively after me with the hoe, and hilled them up as fast as I could put them in the ground. He had then passed his eighty-seventh birthday, and I could see that he was proud of his strength and skill, and of the youthful spirit which he had kept so far into his age. He once said that he rather thought he should live to be ninety, that he had set the limit at that figure, and he seemed to have a pleasure in it, because, as he recalled, his eldest daughter, no longer living herself, used to say that she believed he would live to be ninety. I think that it was the day when we worked together that he spoke to me of the end, which, in any event, could not be far off. He told me that a few nights before he had found himself awake with the thought of it in his mind. He had looked at it steadily, in every aspect, until he had completely possessed himself of it, and for the first time he had experienced no dread of it. Now, he said, whenever it comes, I am resigned. I have lost the precious words in which he expressed his most serene and philosophic mind concerning the great mystery, but I shall never forget the sweet courage, the gentle seriousness of his mood. In these latter years he thought much upon the subjects that had occupied him through life, 
and it is a great pleasure to me that I thought with him on nearly every point. He could not look with content upon the present outcome of our social and political experiment, as he hoped, as I do, for a true commonwealth, in which those who work shall rule, and all shall work, in the spirit of liberty, equality, and fraternity. On the ninth of June he had a stroke of paralysis, which affected the left side in a measure to render him altogether helpless. But he rallied during the months that remained to him of life with extraordinary power. His reserve of vitality from the years simply and sanely spent was very great. And when I saw him three weeks after the stroke, I found him rapidly recovering. His speech was distinct, his laugh was as quick as ever, and his disposition to see his own case in a humorous light was thoroughly characteristic. He loved, as always, to have us about him, to share in our jokes, and to take part in all our graver moods. He was impatient to get back to the table, and within the fourth week he was there again, full of the spirit of whatever was going on, and the cheerfulest amongst us. As he regained his self-control, his lifelong thoughtfulness of others returned to him. He tried to make himself less and less a burden. He was anxious that I should not give time to him that he thought due to my own family, and almost his last intelligible words were to his nurse, to whom he said, with a certain habitual formality of speech, I wish you to understand that I am very grateful to you for your care of me. A week before his death, his final recovery seemed at hand, and when he was attacked by an acute disorder, within four days of the end, his physician thought that he would get well. It was not to be. The noon of a silent August day, whose strange and peculiar beauty he would have enjoyed beyond us all, found him drawing his last breaths, and he died before the afternoon had begun to wane, with those who were dear to him about him, elderly men and women, but children still in their love for him and in their bereavement. End of chapter 28 End of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells